The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. You are listening to The Bird Calls. For more breakdowns on the Pelicans, including interviews with coaches, journalists, and opposing experts, go to iTunes, search The Bird Calls, and subscribe today. What's up, Pelts fans, and welcome to the 95th episode of The Bird Calls. Today, we are celebrating three wins in three nights, a 43-30 and 30 record, as well as fourth Pazid. Fourth Pazid, what is the matter with me, guys? It's, it's, it's 10.30 a.m. on the Eastern Coast. I really have no excuse for this. Even NBA France is tweeting about our Pels right now, Grub. Hell week is over. How are you feeling? Uh, we survived. And and not only that, the Pelicans thrived, and I think a lot there was a lot of concern heading into this um, with the fatigue factor and the, the the quality of the opponents. That- Today's show was brought to you by SAP. Who am I and how am I feeling? I'm Clive Owen, and I'm feeling great. Thanks. How about you? You feeling happy? A little angry? People have so many feelings, millions of them. But what if businesses could really understand all of those feelings and then act on them to make their customers feel better? It's a thing. It's SAP Experience Management, and it's here. Because the future of business has feelings, and I've got a feeling we're all going to like it. Go to sap.com slash xm to learn more. They would be facing, and this team gutted it out. and I think they have to feel really good about that at this point. Yeah, I think we're all on cloud uh, cloud nine right now. I'm going to get a handle on this, you guys, I promise. Of course, that is our special guest, David Grubb of Crescent City Sports. You can follow him at DM Grubb. And we've got with us our trusty bartender and contributor to thebirdrights.com, the president of the Portacol, Mr. Kevin Berrios. Did you get yourself a crawfish tray last night? I did not. Um, I think uh, you had. I think maybe you had to go to a special location to get those because when I walked in, um, they weren't giving them out where I was at, so I didn't bother. Um, All right. <laughs> I think well, we lost Grub. I also. know. I think we did. This this pot is off to a swell <laughs> start, but we're going to recover quickly, just like the Pels do. Every fourth quarter, they pull it together. Uh, okay. So this this is but part one of our podcast. Part two will feature our buddy from Houston, Mr. Ben Dubose of Locked On Rockets. So stay tuned for that after this. Uh, Kevin, let's go ahead and get started now. I'm sure Grub will yeah. join us at some point, and if not... The two of us are just going to pilot the ship right into the ground. Um, Alvin Gentry said last night, they bought into the lie. You can't be tired. No excuses. Just pretend we played yesterday, and it's the second game of a back-to-back. Then Anthony Davis went on to say, all I was thinking was, please don't go into overtime. We can't go into overtime. He said, I've never been this tired before. Coach told us before the game, no excuses. 
This game was definitely mental, mentally draining, but we showed how mentally tough we are. Kevin, we haven't seen the likes of three games in three nights since the lockout shortened season, I want to say in 1999, and no team has won all three games since dating back to 1979. That's good for 39 years. Uh, did, did you think that the Pelicans, I, I guess we're getting spoiled at this point before I turn it over to you. Uh, Ali posted last night, they're 16-0 with uh, – scoring more than 121 points. They're 16-4 and four in games decided by five points or less. How confident were you heading into the final three minutes of the Pelicans were going to pull this one out? You know, first, I want to say, like, I'm, I'm very proud of this team. Like, um, playing at that pace that they were playing at yesterday on the third night of a back-to-back, I didn't – I mean, before the game, we had done our predictions for, for this uh, three-game stretch, and I thought we'd win the first two and lose this one, not necessarily because we couldn't beat the Lakers just because of the conditions of playing three games in a row and knowing that it was going to be a fast-paced game. And this game was faster paced than I thought. I remember, like – in the third at the end of the third quarter i looked over to my buddy travis who i go to the games with and i was like man this feels like it's the end of the game like it, like with, uh, i felt like there was when there was two minutes left in the third quarter felt like it was two minutes left in the game it was so we saw so much action it was just non-stop and um for them to be able to survive that was incredible and you know, when they started to have a little bit waver in the third quarter, I was like, okay, you know, I understand they're going to, they're, they're probably going to fight as hard as they can, but uh, this one's still going to slip away. But I was wrong and they proved me wrong and they proved how incredible they were. But by the time it got down to two minutes in the fourth, I mean, or three minutes in the fourth, I was like, okay, we're going to get this one. But I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was, it's a, a great, great feat and they should be very proud of themselves. Now, we've been rejoined by David Grubb. I'm going to catch you up really quickly. 16-0 mm-hmm. when the Pelicans score 121 points or more. 16-4 and four mm-hmm. in games decided by five points or less. Did we lose him again? Grubb, you got to stop doing this to us, bro. Uh, okay, so I'm going to throw this back to Kevin. Uh, 44% from three for the Lakers on almost 40 shots, but... The Pelicans countered that by shooting 55% from two-point range. The Pelicans are enjoying one of the 10 best seasons uh, in the history of the NBA shooting from two-point percentage, and that's headed off by Drew Holiday, who also has a career high. All these guys are shooting really well. But early on in this one, Contavious Caldwell-Pope couldn't miss. He was 8 of 11 from three-point range. Pretty much everyone not named Lonzo Ball was crushing it from deep. Kyle Kuzma was four of six. Travis Ware was two of four. Did you ever think the Lakers were going to slow down from three-point range? I mean, you had to think that they were just because, you know, the level they were shooting at was so unsustainable. KCP was incredible. I mean, that guy it seems to always have big games against us. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Kuzma's like, even though he's been in a slump a little bit lately from what I've been reading out of, uh, you know, the stuff out of the Lakers and national media stuff, I, I got to say I haven't watched many Lakers games in the last couple of weeks. So um, I can't say firsthand, but that's what I've been reading about him. I mean, he sure broke out of it last night. Um, but still, you know, you got to think that nobody can hit that many threes, especially playing that fast. You know, you're gonna, your legs are going to get tired towards the end. But you know, it was a blistering pace and it was a, it was a really fun game. I mean, if you like defense, it wasn't, and that wasn't there, but you can't, even if you were like one of those big defensive gurus, you can't say you could, you didn't enjoy that game because there was just some great offensive play in it and some really exciting moments. All right. We've got Grub bouncing in and out. So Kevin, we're going to say, I don't know if I'm getting, Oh, there you are. Or something. 
I don't know what it was, but I couldn't. It dropped every time for a few minutes, and I apologize, guys. Oh no worries. We're glad to have you back, man. And we wanna we wanna counter this. We know you've got an article on Crescent City Sports about uh, clutch performances by the Pelicans, mm-hmm. and in the past four games, uh, just last night, the Pelicans finished the fourth quarter thirty-one and seventeen, twenty-nine to twenty-three against the Pacers, twenty-six and thirteen against the Celtics, and thirty-five and twenty-five in the fourth quarter. This is what good teams do, Grub. They close out other teams in the fourth quarter when they need that extra gear they hit it and they pull out the win when they need to how what does this say about the pelicans that they've been so good in the fourth quarter this season and touch upon some of the the notes you took in your article yeah i think it, it says two things one um and the players talked about this last night in the locker room is that for the first time in a few years um they under people understand their roles and are comfortable in them and, I, and that makes sense because of the amount of injuries the amount of different lineups that we saw out of this team and, and, and just the overall, I think, upgrade in talent at some positions on the roster. Uh, but uh, that, that continuity this season, even with the injuries to DeMarcus, even with the injuries that they've had at, at certain points, generally the, the lineup has been together. Your big uh, four out of the five starters have been able to play together for most of the season. So that's been uh, very important. The second thing is, the amount of games they won, they now they lead the league with 29 wins in those clutch situations, and that's when a game is within five uh, points in the last five minutes of the game. That's great in that they're winning those games. Last year they were 26th in the league in, in winning percentage in those kind of games. What the, the noticeable step they have to take next, because right now they're fourth in winning percentage behind teams like Houston, Golden State, Cleveland, and Boston, the elite-level teams in the league. But the big noticeable difference is the amount of close games that they play. So the second step that the Pelicans have to take from being good to very good or possibly a title contender is you reduce the number of close games because that means you're starting to get separation from the rest of the pack. But it's a huge achievement for this group to be able to gut these kinds of games out. It means they're executing better, which means that they understand uh, Gentry's system. People know where they're supposed to be, and they're not going away from the things that work. Though we've seen when they can be frustrating at times during the fourth quarter of games, it seems that they're able this year, unlike previous years, to come back to those things and realign themselves even when they get off track in fourth quarters. All right, Kevin, let's talk a bit about individual performances. Uh, again, he's got a great article on Crescent City Sports. That's David Grubb. Uh, the Pelicans right now uh, have a league-leading 29 clutch victories defined as games that are within five points in the final five minutes of the fourth quarter. You can check out his article on that. Ali also has one at thebirdrights.com. Let's go over to Kevin. Obviously, AD, 33-9 and nine and five stocks. Rondo with a very impressive performance, 24-10-3. You could tell he was baiting Isaiah Thomas into that technical free throw, uh, and he was really jacked up. He really brought it in this one. Everybody did. Drew Holiday, 26-6, and six, just two days removed out of uh, missing that Mavericks game with flu-like symptoms. Ian Clark, 13. And the, the two big ones that I want to touch on, Check Diallo finally earning himself crunch time minutes. Uh, he only had seven rebounds and two points, but he had a positive 13 rating, good for second in the game. And the other one that I really want to focus on is Lonzo Ball. Two of 15 from the field, did not shoot in this one. I think Pelicans were baiting him into shooting. There was a couple of three-point contests in at the end of the game where the Pelicans just didn't even bother to come out and contest him. And uh, lo and behold, it paid off for them. He was one of 12 from three-point range. What was one of the more important performances that got the Pelicans the win in this one, Kevin? 
Well, I mean, obviously having a guy that's got the ball in his hands and giving him uh, open looks and him not hitting him is huge. That helps, you know, um, if you're looking at from the Lakers side, because a lot of people on that team were on fire for most of the game. Um, but, you know, obviously AD is always incredible. I thought Drew Holiday had a very good game, um, you know, and go, and to make reference to those two articles uh, uh, that Ali and David wrote, um, you know, Ali pointed out how Drew Holiday has 13 steals in those clutch situations and his defense is so big and, and uh, what we try to do. I mean, um, I would say that, you know, Drew Holiday is just as important to Anthony Davis as Draymond Green was to um, to Steph Curry before they got Kevin Durant. You know, he's the guy that, that helps distribute, but he also is an anchor defensively that makes his life much easier. And we got to see that a lot um, in the game yesterday. And then just his like prodding through the lane, you know, I, I said um, uh, last night on Twitter that like he, he looked like the silver surfer out there sort of just like gliding across the floor, but it's like a slow sort of, it's not like a quick burst kind of move. It's like a nice and smooth where you sort of see the trail. That's why it reminded me of uh, a silver surfer. You can like just see, everything unfold, you know, he leaves that sort of like trail behind him. Um, And that's always fun to watch him getting to the rim. And then we started to see Darius Miller, uh, you know, get off of the three point line, find himself an open spot in the, in the uh, mid court. I mean, uh, in the mid range and uh, hit jumpers again, Etwan Moore's come to life again, which has been huge. And then, you know, check the Allo's energy, especially, you know, like you said, you're you're playing three games in a row. Um, in a pace that quick, you know, to have a guy to come in to, like, like I said in the last pod, uh, we were talking about, like, just that energy off the bench just sort of re-energizes everybody else that's on the floor that has dead legs when you're seeing this guy who you just can't help but, like, I'm sure his teammates love him. I mean, he's just a burst of energy, a big personality. Um, and seeing him out there running the floor, blocking shots, changing shots, rebounding. He didn't score a lot, but his impact was evident and like you said it was great to see him uh get trusted in clutch situations um rondo you know i wish we could get him some contacts that uh like projects isaiah thomas's jersey onto whoever he's guarding from now on because uh you know when he's playing him he just that beef for whatever reason even if it seems so trivial to us means something to him and uh you know he's super engaged when he's got that matchup. So he looked great. And I hope he can start sustaining that level of play more consistently, especially, you know, down this stretch, which we're basically in a playoff run right now and into the playoffs um, once we're officially in there. Um, So I think, you know, it was a good total team effort. I mean, obviously AD and Drew are the guys that rise to the top because they're more dominant and get the ball more and they put up monstrous numbers, but you look down up and down that roster and everybody had like a key contribution at some point. Um, Miritich is still continually to, continuing to take some pretty bad shots, but he's still doing things that help you on the court at the same time. So if we can get him to even out that even, you know, if he's missing shots, but taking good ones, I wouldn't be that mad because I know that'll level out. He just needs to stop being so Ryan Anderson, as we've discussed before. Um, but other than that, you know, up and down the up and down the roster. I mean, everybody 
contributed well. I mean, Mecca didn't have his best game, but he had moments in there too, you know. All right. Even Solomon the- Hill. Yeah, some oh, of the yeah, more- Solomon Hill. He had that. He hit a, what? He hit a three, and he had a, a great little assist in there. Um, yeah, he looked good too. Uh, some of the more important numbers in this one: points in the paint, 80, 13 steals to two. The Pelicans led uh, that decisively, and total turnovers after giving up twenty against the Mavericks, only eight in this contest. I want to continue with that train of thinking, um, line of thinking, I should say, David. Uh, we were talking about mm-hmm. Jack Diallo earning crunch time minutes over Emeka Okafor, the feel good story, and Nikola Mirotic, the guy who you know was acquired for a first round pick along with Omar Ashik, and is uh, trusted upon to get a lot of these crunch time minutes. Finally, check Diallo, which is what we all want. You know, the young guy, the Pelicans drafted and groomed, proof that the system does work. But I want to give you some of Meritish's numbers uh, since March 9th. The last uh, game he shot over 50% was against the Kings on March 7th. Since then, 3 of 11, 2 of 9, 4 of 9, 3 of 12, 2 of 8, 4 of 12, 3 of 10, 6 of 16, 1 of 7. I know he's got the green light from coaches. And I know that a shooter just needs to shoot and they need to get themselves out of this funk, but it just doesn't seem to working uh, to be working at this point, David. Is it his shot selection? Is it a rotational error? How can we get Nikola Miritich back into a groove? Yeah, I think both of those are issues. His shot selection, he seems to be settling uh, a lot for that three-point shot rather than uh, pump faking and, and, and taking some drives to the basket. And even when he gets on the post, I mean, there was a situation last night, he had Isaiah Thomas defending him in the post and he, you know, took one dribble and passed it out. Those are situations where you have to make a move to try to score, uh, bring people closer to you or try to initiate contact at the rim. But he, he seemed to shy away from that. I think maybe his confidence uh, could be a little bit shaken uh, because of the shots that he's missed much like Darius was going through a really difficult stretch for a while um, and, and wasn't shooting the shots that he wanted in rhythm. Uh, it just looks like he's, he's trying really hard right now instead of playing basketball. And whenever you see athletes doing that, whether, you know, we've had those concerns with Drew Holiday in the past when they're overthinking the game and it just feels like he's stuck in that place right now. Now, defensively, he's still contributing because he's still giving the effort. He's still rebounding and, and rotating um, it was just, I think last night was a difficult matchup for him defensively uh, with Julius Randle, uh, the quickness there, and uh, Robin Lopez with his just strength and uh, height advantage. But uh, offensively, he needs to vary his game up some more. He, he shouldn't be just a shooter. And when he first arrived in New Orleans, I think that's the thing that people were most excited about was that he was demonstrating that he was not just going to hang out by the three-point line, but he's kind of reverted to that over the last uh, few weeks. And that's been disappointing. So if they can get him, especially when they're playing in transition, to go towards the basket more uh, and to create some easy opportunities, uh, then I think he could get back on track. But that may require something in the offense to run some sets that he's familiar with or comfortable with and get him some easy opportunities as soon as he enters with that second unit. All right, Kevin, we're going to get into some questions. Before we wrap up on this one, I've got an important question that I want to ask you about Drew Holiday. Obviously, you have to have him there um, in the clutch. He's been unstoppable defensively. He single-handedly slowed down Victor Oladipo to a crawl, creating a steal, and then creating a travel in the final two minutes against the Pacers. So, too, he was effective. I mean, he's always effective in the final two minutes defensively, but the number that I want to get to is, of course, free throw shooting. Uh, He's 21-27 over his past five games. All six of those misses – 
have come in the final two minutes. Last night, he was just one of three. One of those was a technical free throw. It just looks that he's struggling mentally at the line in moments that matter right now. Um, what What is your solution for, I, I jokingly said on Twitter last night, all we need to do is to get him to make the first one and then Anthony Davis can recover the second one each time down the lane. But what is your solution to getting this guy honed in in the final two minutes and, and, and just making him more effective? Because this is going to continue happening. Guys are going to target him now, knowing that these struggles are taking place. Yeah, you know, I don't, honestly, I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, he... I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if you look, I, I feel like if you look at the numbers, you can get the picture. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I feel like he, throughout his career in New Orleans, he's he's always been sort of, he's gone through these moments where he's had bad sh- stretch runs at the line. And I don't know what causes them. I mean, obviously his play everywhere else has been fantastic. I mean, even in those clutch situations, he's shooting a a really high percentage from three. Um, So it's hard to say that it's a mental thing when he's, you know, making shots in other ways. Um, But it must be something like that. And I don't know how to break those sort of things. I mean, I mean, you can jokingly say he starts shooting them from the three point line because his free throws from the three point line, because that percentage seems better almost than his free throw percentage in the clutch. But, um, you know, I really don't know how to fix that. But, I mean, it has to be some sort of mental thing, but I don't understand where it comes from because he's, you know, balling out in all other aspects of the game in those moments. So it's not like, you know, he's in some sort of slump or something. Let me phrase it like this, David. Uh, There are a couple of instances Mm -hmm. where the Pelicans were coming out of timeout on offense, and they knew that the opponent was going to foul them the moment that they inbounded the ball. In those situations, like last night, where Alvin Gentry was still holding on to two timeouts, would you consider offensively taking Drew off the floor and once you go back to your defensive set, taking a timeout and reinserting him? I don't think so um, because I mean, they left Rondo on the floor and Rondo's a far worse free throw shooter than Drew is. Um, and he'd definitely be a target. There's, you know, I, I think the thing with Drew this year, and I, I don't think it's as much mentally this year as it may have been in years past, I think he's fatigued. He's flat out tired, um, you know, coming off the flu this week. Um, you saw that little bit of fade. And, and, and I think when you're in the motion of playing, when you're in the, when you're up moving up and down the floor, that adrenaline can carry you and you can get your legs and get that lift for the jump shot. But I think when he settles down, what you're seeing is the flatness of his motion because he's just not um, as it, it's just not a rhythm shot. Now you've paused everything. His body gets that chance to kind of tighten up. And, and show that it's, you know, fatigued. And, and, and Jamel McMillan told us that, you know, Drew, Etwan, those guys, you know, they've never played this many minutes in their career, and they are showing signs in practice and on, on game days of having leg fatigue and managing their health has been an, an, a very important uh, thing for them to do over this stretch, uh, these last um, 15 to 20 games of the season. So I think, you know, there's not going to be much rest. This is a great week for them in that they have a number of off days and hopefully they can get their legs back underneath them. But I, I don't think it's a serious problem for Drew, and I certainly wouldn't want him off the floor because of what he means to that team for any stretch. And if a play happens and he wasn't there to make it or assist on it or have his knowledge on the floor, um, even in, in, a, in a foul situation like that where anything could possibly happen, I think the risk is greater than the reward. 
All right, Kevin, we've got two questions. I'm going to let both of you guys answer these. We've got a lot of questions, but these two um, kind of tie into what we're talking about right now. Tejeda asks, Pels are winning a lot of close games. What do you think are the main factors in doing so? Do you think pace, locker room, personal, et cetera? And then we've got a similar question from Evan B. He says, do you all think the team has embraced a gritty, never give up mentality? Who is the biggest player in that system? So let's start with this, Kevin. What do you think is the biggest contributing factor in the Pelicans being so good at closing out games this season? Well, I think um, they've done a good job of putting a finishing five on the floor. You know, sometimes it varies depending on who the player that's playing better at that time uh, in that certain, that particular game. But you're basically, you know, having obviously AD and um, Drew out there and some combination of you know, Miritich or Darius Miller, Ian Clark, usually every now and then Rondo when he's having, you know, a good game. I think they're finding a good, a good, uh, you know, sorry, a good five to put out there to close the game out, the right five to close the game out. And that's key. But also, um, you know, Drew gets very locked in on the defensive end to close games out. And I think he's the biggest reason you're seeing us win those close games is defense on the perimeter, which is, you know, been a weakness for much of the season. It's definitely gotten better um, down the stretch. And I think they're more comfortable um, playing this way right now. Um, I think it it makes sense for them uh, with the roster that they have to play the way that they're playing right now with AD playing more of the five and and running the the floor down the stretch um, being like a more of a up-tempo fast. And they're also not just settling for threes. They're attacking the rim. Um, which is huge. You know, I, I particularly enjoy watching us attack the rim more than I enjoy us walk, uh, jacking up threes. That's just the kind of basketball I like. And I think it's effective for this team with what they have, especially with, you know, AD playing the five spot for much of the game or now with uh, when checks in there and he's playing the five because he's similar and running, get up and down, you know, leaper athlete, around the rim um they're rebounding better also um by having guys that that are are um are better rebounders on the floor for much of the time um and uh, i think and also getting more offensive rebounds because you know your bigs aren't out on the perimeter as much as they were earlier on in the season you know you got mecca underneath the basket you got diallo definitely under the basket ad's playing closer to the rim um, all those things contribute. Um, but I think, yeah, they have a lot of flexibility to match up with whoever they have out there, especially now with Solomon Hill getting some minutes. Um, again, um, they have a lot of different lineups they could throw out there and counteract what the opponent's doing. Um, the pieces make more sense. Even, you know, I'm not saying without Boogie, because even when you get Boogie, then they make even more sense because you can really match up to anybody with um, a lot of uh, variety there. So don't twist my words that way i'm not saying that they're better without them i'm just saying that uh the pieces that they added after you know you basically got rid of ashik who you couldn't play at all jameer nelson who wasn't contributing tony allen who wasn't playing and you got bodies back who can play um and so now you have a lot of pieces and parts that can get minutes on the floor you can and i think they've been doing a good job of um of substitutions where they get guys a lot of rest throughout the game as much as they can. You know, they do multiple, sub, like more substitutions than they would. They would let guys stay out longer 
um, before, but now they take them out, get them a little breather, and then put them back in really quickly. And I think that also contributes to them having the energy towards the end of the game, especially in games where you're playing like three games in a row or, you know, five games in six days, those kind of things. So I think all of that is played a big factor, but I think Drew's level of play, especially on the defensive end, and his ability to get to the rim has really been the biggest factor um, in us uh, finding success. Yeah, I don't think you can point to depth enough. Uh, Alvin Gentry played 11 guys in this game, and there was a large portion of the season where the Pelicans were struggling to get meaningful minutes from from more than seven players. Now we're at 11. We've got uh, 10 of them with 10 minutes or more, or I should say 13 minutes or more. Let me ask you this, David. I'm going to ask you the same Mm -hmm. question, but before I get to that, these last two four wins, the Pelicans got pretty fortunate in that the other teams weren't at full strength. And I know that happens at any point of the season. Obviously, the Pelicans won a large portion of the season without DeMarcus Cousins, without Rajon Rondo, and without Solomon Hill. But with that being said, they were in an advantageous position uh, against the Lakers without Brandon Ingram and Josh Hart, against the Pacers without Demonis Sabonis, against the Celtics, who were crippled without Kyrie Irving and Marcus Smart and um, Jalen Brown and the Mavericks without Dennis Smith Jr. and Wesley Matthews. How much of this do you think is the Pelicans just capitalizing when they needed to? And how much do you think it was simply an advantage against teams that were shorthanded at the time the Pelicans ran into them? Well, I don't put a lot on the the, uh, shorthandedness of the other teams because, I mean, the same Celtics team, again, just beat Oklahoma City. Um, The same Celtics team, you know, as, as had some really good wins with Kyrie on the bench and they've been shorthanded without Gordon Hayward the entire season. And so I, I don't, I don't think, you know, this is a no mercy league. This is professional sports and everybody's got injuries at some point. And, and if you're the Pelicans, you can say, look, nobody's had misfortune the way they have over the last few years when it comes to dealing with um, player uh, games missed by key players. So um, you still have to go out there and compete and win and this Pelicans team, you know, the depth that they have is great depth for the Pelicans. If you took some of these guys and put them on other teams, they may not be as successful in the roles that they're playing. So I think the combination of guys in this group um, is really the difference and, and um, the roles that they play. And like Kevin said, the, with, the, with Drew developing and becoming a fourth quarter terror um, on both ends of the court, the court have been far bigger than what they've faced as far as teams um, missing key players. Um, you still got to go out there and execute. And last night, uh, you know, and on any given night, teams who are shorthanded have guys who step up and play above their level. Um, so I think the Pelicans have to do what they have to do and, and play the games that are on the schedule. Their disadvantage was that they were playing five games in six nights. You know, uh, so they, you know, the Lakers had two nights of rest before they came in. Um, but the main thing I think for the Pelicans, besides the fact that you know guys like Drew have stepped up um, and that guys are more understanding of their roles is the fact that I think that this season what you're seeing late in games is the way that this roster is built they can't go to hero ball you can't just isolate Anthony and say Anthony go get points you couldn't do that with DeMarcus you can't really do that with Drew and I think that's to their benefit because defenses are not able to key on one player take that guy out and then you know the Pelicans are ineffective they are able to continue to move the basketball and give shots to guys in clutch situations who normally may not be the guy to take it, but they're open and they're confident enough to take those shots. They're finding people who are open. And that to me speaks about that cohesion that has taken these three years to develop under Alvin Gentry and that there's finally a complete buy-in 
and just the health and progression of certain players to where that they're capable of executing what he wants to do in those situations. And I don't think that they were able to do that um, last year or the year before. But now the personnel, the health, and the identity of this team is that they're all on the same page. And I think that's a tremendous lift and, and the versatility of this roster as well. Are you trying to chime in over there, Kevin? No. Okay, good. Uh, all right, so we're moving right along to Jason Albert of thebirdrights.com. He's got a question. He says the team has a noticeable lack of dependable small forwards, and looking at their cap space and free agents, it doesn't seem likely that they could add one. This is something that I wrote about in the Ian Clark article uh, about two days ago, just saying that the Pelicans are going to have a lot of difficulty bringing both he and Rajon Rondo back. Of course, they have cap holds on on guys like Emeka Okafor, but with that being said, right now they're slated at 123 million. Of course, the luxury tax line will be somewhere right around there. So if they do want to bring in additional help, they're likely going to have to stretch and wave um, Alexis Agensa as well as trade one of either Nico Meritich, Solomon Hill, Etuan Moore, that sort of thing. His question is, what do you what do you think the possibility uh, is of moving someone like Anthony Davis to some minutes at small forward next season, Kevin? You know, um, I don't think, first off, I'm going to say I don't think the small forward uh, position is as dire as uh, we've made it out to be, um, and it has been in years past, because I I do believe in Solomon Hill. I think he's a good player. I think um, we haven't seen the best of him yet, and uh, even including what we saw from him last year, I think he's going to develop more of an attack first. I mean, we saw what happened with Drew. If they can get Solomon with that same mentality where he's uh, more of an attacker on offense, then we'll start to see a more well-rounded player, but he's a solid uh, defender, obviously. Um, He rebounds okay for his position, and he's a decent playmaker. And then we're seeing, you know, the growth of Darius Miller, who we also have on a very team-favorable contract for next year, who, you know, can hit hit the three-point shot. He's, you know, shown what he can do as a playmaker. we saw, we saw several really nice passes from him again last night and over these past three games. Um, and he's, you know, not he's not a terrible defender. He's a decent one-on-one defender. Um, and I just think between those two and then, you know, playing Etwan Moore some minutes there as needed. And, you know, even if Liggins is still around or, you know, I'm sure Dell will have some other lower end guy that he picks up that can get minutes there. So I'm not as concerned about the three as he is and also you know you can play Miritich there some too he's done that a little bit in his career although he's mainly a power forward um it's an interesting question back in you know in the pre-Pelicans days and the horn when we're still the Hornets and we had you know Robin Lopez and Ryan Anderson and Anthony Davis I thought at that time that you know I could see them playing Anthony Davis a little bit at the three um using his speed and agility to guard the three, but playing him more like the power forward and on offense and AD as the three. I mean, as uh, Ryan Anderson as the three on offense in that sort of situation because he's out on the perimeter, you know, shooting. But I just don't think at this point that's something – I mean, I, I could see it every now and then, especially, you know, if you got Boogie out there and, and Miritich, you know, you have guys that are stretching the floor otherwise and have AD play more of a – big man role on the defensive end um patrolling the paint um but i don't know i just i don't think that the small forward position is 
as bad as people make it out to be. And, you know, we never know what's going to happen. You know, Miritich is here now and he has another year on his contract. We don't know. He might be a guy that gets traded out with a Jensa to get a, a wing that, you know, or whatever. We don't know what Dell has in mind. But um, there's still, I think, you can trust in Dell to make another move if he sees fit. If not, I'm comfortable with Solomon Hill and Darius Miller and Etwan Moore logging most of the minutes over there. David, uh, speaking of wings coming in, we saw uh, a pair of free agent wings in Julius Randle and Contavious Caldwell Pope, who combined for 51 points and something like 14 rebounds uh, and a positive minus of 7 and 12, respectively. Would you offer either of those guys four years, $33 million? Well, yeah, I don't think they have the cap space to do so. Um, in general, if I were a general manager, I think Julius Randle would be my first choice out of the two of those guys. His upside to me still seems higher. Um, he's, you know, a, an excellent passer, uh, can run the fast break, uh, and is, is just a load um, at, on the block and has a variety of moves, too, and a very soft touch. So I think Randall is, would be, for any team, uh, would be a great addition. Uh, Pope, you know, this has been a great season for him, uh, but I don't know how sustainable it is, and I don't know um, what I – don't, I don't see his peak just being as high as Randall's is, but – you know, for the Pelicans to do that, again, like, like Kevin says, you'd have to package something to be able to get a player of that caliber um, to, to fit under the cap space. Um, but going back to the, uh, the small forward position, I think you do just have to at this point say, you know, let's see what the healthy combination of Hill and um, Miller looks like next season because it does change the entire rotation. You will, you'd see Etwan coming off the bench more, um, particularly if Rondo does come back. And that group becomes – a lot more dynamic in that regard. Uh, I think with Solo, too, um, he's still testing himself out, so it's not fair for us right now to make an assessment of what he is or is not going to be for next season. Uh, I think his continued development will have to be, just like with Darius, is can you make that second move off of a shot to get um, for Solomon to be probably pulling up for a second shot, not getting all the way to the rim because that's just not his game. But for Darius, he's going to have to get um, a little bit better at going all the way to the rim uh, and finishing there. And I think he's capable of that. He's got a strong build. He has a good reach. So I think the position is not as dire, um, as Kevin said, as people may think. You'd like to see maybe a little bit more length or um, you know, uh, wingspan or athleticism at the position. Uh, and that maybe can be found in a free agent or a second round draft pick or, or something like that. But um, generally I, I'm not as concerned with the position as I was, especially with um, the fact that, you know, you see that the, the, the defenders are able to switch more, um, you know, even in the front court, they've been able to switch and, and continue to defend at a high level. So I don't think there should be any um, rush to make a move at small forward, but if there's a good one, yeah, I would, I would, be certain that Dell Dems would pursue something that would upgrade the team, but not in a panic type mode. All right. I should have prefaced that one. There's no way the Pelicans can use their mid-level exception unless they onload, uh, offload both of Alexis Agensa and another player with a sizable contract like a Solomon Hill, Etwan Moore, or Nikola Miritich. Then they would have access to their over-the-cap mid-level exception and possibly their biannual, depending on how low, if they're able to get under the the floor. Uh, let's quickly talk about our last uh, three games against the Pacers, the Mavericks, and the Celtics. And I want to concentrate on bench scoring. In each game, a different role player stepped up and really uh, 
facilitated scoring for the Pelicans in these matchups in which, um, I don't know, somebody has to contribute off the bench. And it was either a combination of Rajon Rondo and Czech Diallo, Etuan Moore, Ian Clark poured in a lot of points in three out of these four contests. This whole bench score by committee seems to be working really well for the Pelicans right now. But is that something that can translate in the playoffs, Kevin? Do you need uh, a scoring first, like Lou Williams type, Jamal Crawford type? Or do you think score by committee is something that that can still be effective in the first round? I think the committee suits us the best because you got to look at where our our main guy is Anthony Davis. And, you know, obviously one B or two is Drew Holiday. And one of those guys is going to be on the floor all the time. And you're going to want one of them to be getting most of the points, most of the touches. So you need a guy who can be used to playing off of a guy, not be a guy like, not that I'm saying Lou Williams will be bad on this team, but, you know, just like a, a guy who's used to not being the guy that comes in and just starts cooking. But if he gets hot, you know, the team start feeding him. And I think, you know, that's what's been great about this stretch run is that you have multiple guys that play multiple different styles that, you know, that can get hot and can take advantage of certain um, situations. Um, so you have like a different, different types of guys. You have a check the who's a post guy who can run the floor, who can finish athletically around the rim. He has a decent mid range, uh, you know, like he's showing a decent touch from the mid range, you know, right now. Um, then you have like Ian Clark, who's a prodder, a good uh, floater guy who can also get hot from three. Darius Miller, who's a great three-point shot, some pretty good in the mid-range, not so great around the basket yet, as uh, David said. Um, but we have multiple kinds of guys, so depending on whatever matchup we have, we have a guy that we can rely on that that attacks their weakness, and I think that's great. Instead of like totally being concerned with one guy coming in cooking and and relying completely on one guy where that also helps the opposing team's defense know what they have to do. They have to just stop this guy from like, try to take away him getting touches, you know, like double him, you know, just prevent the ball from getting to him. Whereas now we just can move the ball around and one of them is going to start contributing. And I think that's a strength for us on the bench is that we have multiple guys that can score and can impact the game and, but don't need to constantly also. Uh, Grub, to continue this train of thought, most coaches shorten their playoff rotations and and the minutes and the workload gets higher for each individual that does participate in each game. And the Pelicans played 11 guys last night. Heading into the playoffs, you have to think somebody like a DeAndre Liggins might have his minutes uh, chopped off altogether. And then you're still left with five bench players and Ian Clark, Solomon Hill, Darius Miller, Cech Dial, and Nikola Meritich, in addition to guys whose minutes fluctuate on a nightly basis in Emeka Okafor and Rajan Rondo. Who is your best eight to nine man rotation heading into the playoffs? Who do you think are the four bench players uh, liable to get most of those minutes? Well, I think, you know, obviously Miritich, you have to put him as first because of the front line um, lack of depth uh, there. Um, And I think Ian Clark has earned that second position with his play, the steadiness of his play. And Darius Miller would be third because of the shooting that you require. And then Solomon Hill, I think, you know, will get the rest of those minutes. Uh, because the uh, the playoff, the way it slows down and defense becomes much more of a priority, I think that especially with him recovering from that hamstring, it becomes much more suitable for him to play in those types of situations. So I think those four guys outside of your five core starters, and I continue to put you know Mecca as a as a starter at this point. So I think those are the four guys who they'll rely on 
And then, you know, going back to, to Kevin point, Kevin's point as well, is that uh, I think this is all in alignment with, with what Alvin has wanted to do throughout his career, is not rely on a singular guy to come off the bench and score and be able to exploit matchups, um, as we've been talking about. That makes them so much more difficult to defend in not knowing where the shots are going to come from. And they will feed the guy who's hot, but they're not dependent on forcing the issue. And so I think that does make them more of a difficult uh, opponent to face as they go into the playoffs. Um, just the fact that guys don't feel like they can't shoot or that they won't be a part of the offense. They're engaged on both ends of the court. Uh, so even as that group tightens up, and if one of those guys who does lose minutes is forced to come in, the amount of time that they've gotten over the course of the season in key situations will benefit um, even as the rotation gets tighter. All right, let's wrap this up. We've got 10 minutes and I've got two important questions. The first one is just going to be a Rockets preview on Saturday. Uh, we'll start with with Kevin. Uh, give me a quick game plan. Uh, how many minutes do you want to give these guys? They've got to be tired. Today they have the day off from practices, but they are attending Tom Benz's funeral. So they will be out and about. They'll be traveling to Houston either at some point late tonight or sometime tomorrow morning. Uh, what is your plan of action in this one? Uh, let's make it about a minute, then we'll throw it over to Grub. And then I got one more question. I'll let you guys go. Go for it, Kev. Okay. Um, I mean, I would approach this game just like every other game. You know, you want to you want to win the, this game. I don't think you want just because Houston is uh, the number one seed and then you're not going to gain ground on them. Uh, that doesn't matter. You're still in, the, in a tight playoff race, so you need to approach it like a game that is a must win. And this is a team that you might end up facing in the playoffs and you beat them already. And you, if that, say, the last game that we played them in, if you played that game in a hard drive where a computer was calling the fouls, that was probably a win for the Pelicans. So I think you need to beat them to show that you can beat them, and especially if you can beat them at home. And that would be a great confidence boost for this team and a serve notice to the league that we could beat them with Boogie playing a different style. And we can we probably should have beat them already at this new style and that we can beat them at their own game. And I think that's very important. And I think one of the keys is again getting to the getting to the basket, um, getting on the on the better side of the foul calls, like attacking the rim, making them grab you, making them hold you, and being a little bit more of an actor um, when you get contact to try to get to that line, play a little bit of their game, even though I sort of despise, hate watching that. When you're playing them, you have to do it because you have to try to level the playing field some way. And I think that's the main thing. Don't fall in love with the three, get to the rim, get to the line, and definitely rebound is also key. Um, and then I saw somebody had a question about like how um, I don't know if this was your next question, but since it's related to the Rockets, I'll just throw it out there. Um, I, and you can say who said it. I forgot who it was. But what's the best way to defend them? And I think DeAndre Liggins gave us the, the blueprint. You just have to have your arms behind your back because we saw with Drew with his uh, arm on his stomach, one arm on his stomach, one hand up, still get the call on a phantom whistle. So, um, you know, it's just something you got to deal with. And it's frustrating and infuriating but you you have to try to play their game i guess but also um you know try to get contact out of them you know draw draw fouls as much as you can and you know don't let it affect you as much as it, it can i mean i know it's hard but i think um that this is a game that i think they're gonna win this game i really do and i think uh we uh just need to keep playing the way we're playing and not really worry about um, 
rest or or trying to change up because of the opponent. I think our game plan has been solid lately and everybody's flowing well. All right, that one was from CB. What's the best way to defend Houston from a Pels perspective? I think the Pelicans pretty much follow the same blueprint they did last time, with the exception being that James Harden and Clint Capella screen and roll was was so killer. Uh, why don't you give us your quick game plan, and then we're going to wrap this up with who the Pelicans want to face in the playoffs, Grab. Yeah, to me, the biggest issue, you know, outside of the, the egregious foul calls was the the amount of space that Chris Paul was given to get into the lane last game. So I think that they have to make sure that, that, that Paul is not given the space to shoot that jump shot in the paint. Um, he, he did that repeatedly uh, in the last uh, time that, that these two teams played the Smoothie King Center. So I think cutting him off um, from that shot is, is a big uh, key. The second part is they have to engage the three-point shooters a little bit earlier. The guys like Eric Gordon um, and Trevor Ariza, the Pelicans have had trouble all season with the, defending the corner three. And Eric Gordon will pull up, you know, from good distance behind the line. So the guards have to remember to stay disciplined and be in his airspace because I don't view Gordon as the kind of guy who's really going to dominate you off the dribble. So engaging him early, I think, and taking him out of it, you're not going to stop Harden from getting those calls. That's just what he does. You're going to have to concede some of that. But it's to me, it's more important than getting those other guys off their rhythm and continuing to keep Capella off of the glass. He's such an active rebounder. And again, that pick and roll has been so devastating. So it's to me, the focus is on Capella, uh, limiting Paul's ability to get to the middle of the floor and then defending those shooters and engaging them earlier. Uh, if the Pelicans can do those things, we've seen that they're very competitive against the Rockets. Um, they'd ha- they should have another great chance to steal a win there. And then the, the other, only other thing else I would say about the, the team in general is if Gentry sees that guys, their legs are just completely gone, and he's unable to manage that through timeouts. Um, I just don't want him to put anybody in jeopardy um, trying to get a win. Uh, if the, the long-term goal to me is still more important than any individual game, try to win this game. Play it to win. But if you notice your guys just don't have it, I don't think you want to force it, knowing that there is rest coming up this week, and you will be able to get back into a rhythm, I think. Yeah, I really like the the execution of the Pelicans game plan. We like to think that Chris Paul and James Harden uh, destroyed us in that one. They combined for 51 points. But what you don't see is that they only combined to shoot 19 of 47 of the night. The two of them combined from three-point range for just seven of 19. Uh, they were contested early and often. And the Pelicans were daring guys like Trevor Ariza, P.J., Tucker, Ryan Anderson, Luke Mabamute to beat them. They were even fighting over screens with Eric Gordon, who only took five shots on the night. And of course, Joe Johnson killed him. And that's something the Pelicans will hope to luck into again in this one. Nene Hilario, who gives uh, Anthony Davis a lot of uh, difficulty with his physical play and his offensive rebounding was also absent in this one. Uh, Hopefully we won't see him in this contest. But I think if the Pelicans do a lot of the same things they did in the previous contest, uh, like Kevin said, if the calls go both ways, there's a good chance that Pelicans, if they don't win it are at least going to be within that five point threshold and we've seen whenever the pelicans get close a lot of the times they they pull this one out i I have to wrap it up there i'm so sorry you guys we've got two more questions considering uh which which teams that you guys want to face in the playoffs let's see who those are from those are from uh and john t why don't you just give me one name kevin uh which team would you like to see oh I, I'll just say I think we can beat every team except for Golden State. I think we have a chance to win 
every game except Golden State. So that's the team I don't want to see. The team I really want to see is actually the Rockets because I hate them and I think we can beat them. I don't like their style of play and I think we can disappoint them in the playoffs and and uh and that would be very rewarding to me. Uh, I don't want to see us play the Rockets, even though I do hate them, just because I don't like their brand of basketball. It is effective and it is intelligent. I understand that they've they've got the system on lockdown, but it just frustrates me to no end seeing a team just create uh, fouls and controversy on a game and ga- game out basis. Grub, who do you want to match up with? Um, again, I'd probably be like Kevin to say who I don't want to see. I, and the, the only two teams that I really don't want to see, obviously, are the Warriors and um, Utah. I just don't like the matchup with Utah um, in any regard. Their defense is just so good, and, and Joe Ingles in particular is just has been just tremendously problematic for the for the Pelicans and Donovan Mitchell with his explosiveness. So those are the only two teams that I feel like I don't want to see them play. Um, the rest of them, you know, I don't think there's a, a you know any other team that they can't neutralize. I think you know every other matchup, whether it's Portland or Oklahoma City, they're favorable matchups and in, in most of those series Anthony Davis will be the best player on the floor and if that's the case in the playoffs you usually have a good chance to win so um, outside of Golden State and Utah I, I say bring them on I'm 100% in agreement with your uh, Utah pick Rudy Gobert is always such a challenge for Anthony Davis and while uh, Utah gives the Pelicans as a team a better chance to win a series overall if you put Anthony Davis against Golden State there is no stopping Anthony Davis he routinely just feasts on them uh, Draymond Green their stopper is just not big enough to stop him he can shoot right over him Zaza's too slow there's just no stopping Anthony Davis he's a freight train uh, against Golden State so those could be some exciting high scoring games albeit uh, one of the Pelicans like will not emerge from if all three of these stars Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry can return as they're slated to do. In fact, I think Steph Curry was slated to return tonight, actually. I can't remember who they're yeah. facing, but uh, smart picks you guys. I gotta let you go because I got Ben DeVos of Locked On Rockets coming right after. Uh, really quickly, David, do you have anything to plug? Uh, no, just keep following me, keep reading my stuff, and I'll always be around. <laughs> all right, Kevin, uh, anything from you, sir? Um, Nothing for me, but I want to plug something from you. You got an article about Gail Benson coming up today, correct? Yes, sir. Thanks so much. Uh, that one should be dropping today. Of course, uh, today is Tom Benson's funeral, and the Pelicans will be in attendance. Of course, uh, Anthony Davis and Drew Brees will be the the the. Gosh, uh, I, I don't know how to say honorary this. Honorary Paul Bear. Yeah, I didn't know the most tasteful way to say it, uh, but that's that's something to look forward to. Uh, so, can. I don't want to say congratulations, but it's it's such a nice sentiment that Gail uh, chose two uh, strong, respective guys representing these franchises, representing the city. It's it's a really nice gesture, and they must have been very meaningful to Tom Benson's life. And proud to have those guys representing not only him but representing our city. Two wonderful human beings and athletes who uh, just play the game and uh, just interact with the media and the fans the right way. So glad to have them out there. In addition, I've got an Ian Clark article out. Ali and David both have some wonderful breakdowns of uh, clutch scoring and clutch performances by the Pelicans on this year. Uh, I'm going to let you guys go. Coming up next, we've got our preview with our hated nemesis, uh, Locked on Rockets, Ben DeBose. He's actually our good friend, but uh, just just uh, talking about the matchup last week and Alvin Gentry's postgame comments, it's definitely going to be heated. I'm definitely going to grill uh, Ben on what his response to was or what his response to all the negative reaction from fans around the association was. So stay tuned for that coming up now. All right, guys, welcome to part two of our pod this morning, where we are speaking with Locked On Rockets host Ben DuBose. Thank you for joining us again, sir. Yeah, glad to be back. We've had so many of these Pelicans-Rockets games in the past 
three months, it feels like a very backloaded schedule. And each time they're so exciting. Of course, the Pelicans have had a really exciting uh, week. You guys have have as well, uh, concluding with your overtime victory over the Pistons. You've had a dreadful three games and four nights. The Pelicans, uh, so too, have had five games and six nights, six nights, excuse me. But every game the Pelicans have had with Houston has had this extra weight to it. And maybe it's because we're neighbors in the Southwest Division. Maybe it's because they've been so close coming to the end nearly every uh, seemingly time, uh, 115 to 113, being famous with the Boogie Achilles injury most recently 107 101 um and you of course gave us an in-depth look at the Rockets. So we're not going to need to do that you told us the ad versus harden mvp debate broke down why the rockets are enjoying their best team in franchise history on last week's pod uh, i think they just enjoyed their 58th victory and that's their all-time record uh so one more victory in the next 10 contests will eclipse that mark but i do have some things i'd like to ask you ben first of all what was your response to alvin gentry's tirade last weekend in the post-game press conference that caught so much attention? I was a little surprised um, because when you look at overall the numbers for the season, I was talking on multiple levels. First, uh, AD and Boogie are both two of the guys in the NBA this year that do get the most uh, fouls per game. The other issue, when you look at that particular game, other than that one sequence, Harden had eight free throws for the game, and four of them literally came – on one sequence, the the controversial three-point foul against Drew Holiday and then the, the tee that Gentry picked up in there. Other than that, he got a whopping four free throws the entire game. So I guess my response to it, I didn't necessarily think he was wrong, but it's more – I didn't think it was necessarily biased against his team. I think the critique is fair. I think it's more – you know, you look at the Rockets had 18 free throws. The Pelicans had 12 four of the free throws of the Rockets came on that one sequence. Others came in the final minute of the game in garbage time. So, you know, I would say in general, yes, the officials let a ton of contact go on both sides in that last game that probably should not have been let go. But I didn't necessarily think it cut one way or the other. It was just a game that was far too physical in general. And so that's why it surprised me a little bit is that, you know, I just disagreed with the take that it was just against Anthony Davis in general. Uh, you know, the Rockets could pick some of those that they thought that they deserved and they didn't get. It was just a classic physical NBA game, unfortunately, that probably the league needs, needs to clean up a little better than it did. Yeah, the free throw disparity in this one was just 18 to 12. I want to say that this isn't exclusively against the Rockets. The Rockets are uh, famous for drawing contact like James Harden and Chris, and Chris Paul. You are a student saying that uh, Anthony Davis does draw a lot of fouls. However, in terms of free throws, since Boogie went down, uh, the Pelicans went from averaging, or I should say since the Suns game where uh, Anthony Davis hilariously threw out three players due to foul trouble. Uh, <laughs> since that point in time, the Pelicans have only had 14 foul shots per game. And from the midpoint of the Rockets game, dating back to the game before it, I want to say against the Hornets, I might be getting the math wrong. It might be in the Spurs and the Hornets. The Pelicans went 45 game minutes with just two foul shots. So I want to say this isn't 100% just on the Rockets, although it was easy to point to the touch foul that you mentioned, uh, the James Harden, one where Drew Holiday famously had his hand on his chest as well as that scrum at the end of the game, which I think was involved with Ian Clark. And I want to say P.J. Tucker, that was a tough call for both sides. That one could have gone either way, but the foul wasn't called. And it's not like there's a situation where you can go back and review a foul and then call a foul. So once that initial ruling is made, uh, but I do want to say it, it, it wasn't just the Rockets. It was a combination of things uh, being said. But with that being said, Chris Paul and James Harden are famous for, for getting a lot of flack around the association, for throwing back the head and being able to, to, to bait defenders into foul shots. Uh, what is your response as a Houston Rockets fan? Is it one of those things where 
if James Harden played for another team, I wouldn't like it, or I respect the way that he plays the game and the way that he knows how to play the system. It's a little bit of both. Um, and, and by the way, on your former point, it's one of those, when I don't follow the Pelicans, it's tough for me to know, you know, the narratives from game to game. So I'm just giving my take on exactly what happened that Definitely. night. It makes more, it makes more sense if, if Gentry's seen something for a few games and it's not just about what happened that night. Cause it just, it, it caught me a little off guard. Cause as we said, you know, there's a lot of contact both ways that was kind of uh, being let go in that game. But uh, yeah, that, that, that makes more sense. As far as Paul and Harden, and, and I think it really starts with, um, with with James. I mean, with Chris, I think it's more the, the fact that he is just here now. And and I really think there's kind of two sides to this. First, this year in particular, it's kind of the new version of, I feel like, uh, all the comments for years about the Warriors and moving screens in that it just kind of comes with the territory when a team is really good and the Rockets now basically five games clear for the best record in the league. You know, you always find ways to – to nitpick, you know, and, and certainly I've done it sometimes over the years. I've, I'm sure I've retweeted some examples of Andrew Bogut and other Warriors setting these I- illegal screens over the years. And part of it's because, you know, when a team is that good, it just kind of, it's easy to do that. You, you know, you kind of feel helpless and it just kind of comes to the nature of fandom. The other thing with James, my theory on him, you know, when you look at the household name stars around the NBA, in which I would say AD is up there too, with AD, Physically, he's just a freak. You'd say the same thing with LeBron, who's built like a tank. The athleticism that AD has at a 4-5 is just unmatched. When you think Russell Westbrook, you think the quick twitch, muscle fiber. You look at Curry and Durant. Curry's the best shooter the game has ever seen. Durant's basically a shooting guard, yet he's seven feet tall. Like All these guys are physically just freakish when you look at them. And Harden, it's not that Harden is bad physically, But, like, if you were to just look in a very stereotypical sense, you know, size, shooting, athleticism, defense, all the ways we traditionally look at NBA players, you know, Harden's not really bad at any of those, but he's going to get, you know, and most I'd say you great amount is like a 7, 8 out of 10. But what makes Harden a superstar is that he sees the game in a way that very few players historically have ever done. His hoops IQ is so intelligent. And, of course, that partially goes into the fouls he draws. And I just think in general, if he were on another team, it would frustrate me a lot because so many stars are on the league. You know, you look at someone like AD or Curry, Durant, LeBron, Westbrook, any of the guys we just threw up, you know, it's easy to say that guy is just a freak. He's a physical freak. And so if my team is, gets the short end of the stick against that guy, you know, you just kind of move on and say, you know, it just comes to the territory. With Harden, again, it's not that he's a bad athlete. It's not that he's bad. It's just he doesn't have that one thing when you look at him and you say, wow, my team can't compete with this guy's team. So I think when you see Harden have these results, it's very frustrating for a lot of fans because they can't necessarily uh, contextualize it to the same extent they can with those other household names. And also, I think because Harden's game, you know, the attributes you discussed, it's kind of rare historically amongst NBA stars. So I think the rarity of it as well, it just kind of plays into an annoyance because it's just, you know, like I said, it's easier to accept a guy like AD Curry, whoever it may be that, okay, they're just that physically dominant and they beat my team. Whereas the way Harden does it, there's not really that much of a history of it. And so I think, you know, it's hard to explain, but my vibe is just that that uncertainty, that lack of historical context, just, it makes it harder for folks to accept when Harden does something really good against their team. So they try and find, you know, 
things to poke holes in, get upset about, whatever you want to call it. Definitely. It is it is easy to do that. But the fact of the matter is that it was a hard-fought game. The Rockets won, and Alvin Gentry made a point after his post-game comments to go into the Rockets' guest locker room, speak with CP3, speak with uh, James Harden, and speak with Mike D'Antoni and let them know that there was no ill will, that those guys won the game. He just wanted a, a, a fair and even opportunity to win this one. I want to talk a little bit about the game plan in this previous one, Ben. Uh, CP3 and James Harden, the Pelicans kind of just dared them to beat them. They took 47 shots. They got 53 points, 20 rebounds and 13 assists i might have those numbers backwards it might have been 13 rebounds and 20 assists uh but in this one the pelicans uh kind of took away three-point shooting from everybody else the only guy who really hurt them outside of those two was trevor reza uh why don't you grade chris paul and james harden performance in this one they combined to shoot somewhere around uh i want to say 40 percent. the team as a whole shot 42 percent. but these guys made the shots when it mattered yeah, I would give them a B plus, both of them. The percentages, you know, it wasn't laser efficient. You don't typically think of what I, I think James had 28 attempts. I think part of it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the uh, officiating both ways for James, for AD. They didn't get the calls they expected to get. So I think if Harden gets a few more whistles, then maybe he's, you know, maybe he's closer to uh, like 11 of 24 rather than 11 of 28, that kind of thing. So I think that might have played in a little bit. But overall, I mean, I think that's the trend you're seeing around the league is that more and more teams are just going to sell out to take away those three-pointers. We actually saw the same thing in uh, Portland earlier this week, a very close win. The Rockets had there, Portland playing phenomenal ball, entering on a 13-game winning streak. And that was a game that Harden had 42 and he, on like 52% shooting. He basically had to have all of them because the Rockets as a team were not getting the open threes. Portland was largely uh, selling out. They weren't helping. They were essentially daring Harden and Chris Paul to make them make plays one-on-one, especially because when they make plays one-on-one, a lot of times, even if you give up points, it's going to be twos rather than threes. And ultimately, can the Rockets win that way? Sure you can, because James Harden and Chris Paul are two of the best isolation players of all time. But the one thing that that you've got to keep an eye on is that that can put a little bit more fatigue. For example, Harden in that Portland game, incredibly high workload. We mentioned the 25 shots. I think he had 28 in New Orleans last weekend. And yeah, that's great. He won those games. But last night against Detroit, by far the most forgettable game in the entire Rocket season. They found a way to kind of, I guess, get a very ugly win anyway. But Harden shot just four of 20 in regulation. He was two of 16. He had no lift, just very tired. Part of it, they always say that, you know, the most dangerous game after a road trip is the first game back home. And I think there was some semblance of that going on. But that's just one thing to watch. They do have a day off today. So maybe he's re-energized by Saturday. But I do think, you know, this strategy that New Orleans tried, we saw it with Portland earlier this week, it even puts more strain than ever on the likes of James Harden. So if there's any slippage at all, which there was in Harden last night, then it becomes very evident in terms of the rest of the team's play because you're just not getting the overall volume of open threes. Uh, just two more questions, one being what you just touched upon. But before I get to that, something that was uh, intensely frustrating for me was watching the delicious basketball uh, shared by Clint Capella and James Harden. Uh, there was a lot of replays just showing the decision-making that Anthony Davis had to make after James Harden beat his defender off the dribble was that he had a choice either to attack James Harden, who would then loft it up to Clint Capella, or stay home on Clint Capella, in which case James Harden would kiss it off the glass. What is the best version of defending that that you've seen against the Rockets this year? I think, I'm trying to think, um, 
New Orleans is up there because the key is having the athleticism to recover. Uh, and, of course, it's very daunting because you risk getting into foul trouble, and that's not something that the Pelicans, especially without Boogie Cousins now, can do. But I think, I, I think your best shot in that situation is to show and try to get back because that's your shot of essentially, you know, if, if Anthony Davis shows on Harden when he is rolling and then tries to get back, and of course he's athletic enough many times to leap up and deflect or at least contest that lob, then what you often end up with is Harden with a floater, something in the mid-range game, and for a Rocket team that's that good, that gets so many threes, layups, dunks, you know, if you can limit them to a contested or semi-contested uh mid-range floater, honestly, that's a pretty good possession. So I would say that's probably – I don't know if he's been the, the best. Uh, Utah at times this year with Rudy Gobert and the athleticism they have on that front line had done it as well. But I think that's really the key. You can't just sell out on one or the other. You just have to hope that, uh, that your big is capable of um, providing some threat on both ends of it. And of course it also helps if you're into a game, in which the Rockets are cold from three, because that makes it all the easier for certain other guys to kind of chip and help out from the corner, that sort of thing. Uh, all right. This will be the last question. Uh, as you mentioned, the Rockets are in the middle of another five game win streak and the Pelicans are part of that. And yet since de- defeating the Mavericks in decisive fashion, you guys have been on a couple of tight ones. You mentioned the overtime thriller or uh, not so thriller. I should mention with the Pistons, 196. Uh, also the, the Pelicans was a six point contest. The Wolves, I think was nine. The Blazers was tight and the Pistons was tight. You guys are tired. The Pelicans are tired. Uh, who manages to squeak this one out and survive? And also, you guys are in the middle of another streak. When do you think your streak ends? Whew, that's, that's a tough question. So the thing to watch for the Rockets, Chris Paul sat out that Detroit game. Uh, while it's not con- he's expected to return this weekend, it does look like Luke Vamute, who's battling some tendonitis in his knee, left early last night. He's probably going to be out. He's a big key for them defensively Saturday night. I tend to say the Rockets will win this one only because – my guess is that with it being a back-to-back, they, they play more of the regulars on the front end because the Pelicans are a team that's good enough to beat them. If they don't, the back end is the Atlanta Hawks. So I think if the Rockets are going to rust, which I think a lot of their guys will, because now their lead for the top seed home court throughout the playoffs is uh, basically at five games, only 10 to play. So they're at a point they can start resting, as evidenced by Chris Paul sitting last night. So my guess, unfortunately for New Orleans, is that they get – the tougher end of it, because I feel like the Rockets on the back end Sunday against Atlanta, that's a game that screams a little more, um, a, a, a little more schedule. I don't want to say schedule loss, but schedule rest. Certainly the Hawks, not a very good team period. So the Rockets in theory uh, could get that whenever I will say, I don't expect them to sweep the homestand. I don't know where it is, but you could certainly sense some lethargy last night against the Pistons, you know, you have those three games at New Orleans, at Minnesota, at Portland, all just playoff environments. And even if it wasn't that important for the Rockets at the same time, there's just a natural, uh, I don't know, increase in intensity that comes from being in games like that, that means so much for one team, even if quite frankly, they don't mean that much to you. So I think going into a game in Houston, in which, The crowds, while not terrible, it's just not quite the same as being on the road when it's such a huge deal for those teams. So I don't know if it's it's New Orleans, if it's Atlanta, if it's 
Chicago. I just feel like there's going to be one game because the Rockets very easily could have lost last night where they just stubbed their toe because of a combination of players players resting, the games not being that um, meaningful to them. It's just not easy to win. You know, they're 28 and two in their last 30. They've now won uh, seven in a row, I believe, since that Toronto loss a few weeks back. So it, it's as easy as they make it look. Reality, it's not that easy. It's evidenced by almost losing to a very blah 32 and 40 Detroit team Thursday night. So I don't know when it comes. It actually wouldn't surprise me if it's against one of those three uh, bad teams. But I just feel like there's going to be one where the legs aren't there, the the stakes, the lethargy in the arena, because at this point they're all just kind of waiting on the playoffs. I don't expect them to sweep the homestand. That, that, that's the best way I can sum it up. I think at some point over the next week they do take a loss. It looks like the Pelicans are catching you guys at just the wrong time with a five-game lead over Golden State. And I think you guys have the tiebreaker with just 10 games remaining. Five of your yep. games are against the Hawks, the Bulls, and the Suns at home, and then the Lakers, the Kings on the road. Uh, best of luck to you, sir. I do want to mention before I let you go that you mentioned some officiating stuff, and I think that's something that's happening lead-wide. We've seen just in the past four or five days Dwayne Casey, Frank Vogel, and Stan Van Gundy, in addition to Alvin Gentry, uh, mentioning their distaste with some in-game officiating. So it is something that's ha- happening around the association. Uh, for our faithful subscribers, we want to thank you guys for sticking with us this season. We're approaching 100,000 downloads this year, uh, but we don't have that many ratings. So please, if you like what you're hearing, take a moment, go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating. We appreciate it so much. If we get to 100 before the end of this weekend, we're going to give you guys a special bonus episode on Pelican's off-season plans. Uh, ben, before I let you go, at Ben DeBose and, of course, at Locked on Rockets, where you guys can find him. He is the host. Are you going to be live tweeting tomorrow night? Yep, I yep, I'll be out at Toyota Center. We'll be live tweeting, and then we'll have a post-game show uh, probably Sunday morning after everything happens. So, yeah, if you want more coverage of the Rockets side of it, uh, don't hesitate to uh, reach out and find what we're saying on this side of the uh, Louisiana-Texas border. For now, I'm Preston Ellis. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you back on Monday with Kevin Ollie and a special guest from Portland. Let's go, Pels, and thank you to Ben. You have been listening to The Bird Calls. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, do us one more favor. Go to iTunes, subscribe, and rate our podcast today. Johnny got a toy golf set when he was three, and from that day on, he was hooked. All he wanted to do was golf, golf, golf. He'd be on the links before school, after school. All he ever wanted was to go pro. And then, one day, when he was holding his grandson and thinking about his 12 handicap, Johnny realized it just might not happen for him. But you know what did happen for him? He switched to GEICO and saved a bunch of money on car insurance. So that was good, and so was hanging out with his grandson. And now, a thought from GEICO Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to take a spirit animal quiz online. Please be the cheetah. Please be the cheetah. And learn your animal isn't the cheetah, but the far less appealing blobfish. Oh, come on. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 blobfish minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance.